You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 39. Genesis 39, we're almost finished with this, this book, uh, the book of Genesis, and just a few more weeks in it before we're done. And um, I want to read this to you. We, we've been talking about the patriarchs a lot, uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but now it's interesting because as the narrative moves forward, we're not, uh, it's been following the, the seed of, of Abraham, the, seed, the blessed seed, the seed that would bring about the Messiah. So it goes from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac uh, to Jacob, and now it, it goes next to Judah, but we don't know that yet. It goes next to Judah, but the, 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 whole, the whole rest of the book focuses on this one man, Joseph. Joseph does not carry the Messianic seed forward. However, Joseph is probably the most upright. He's a breath of fresh air in the book of Genesis. Everyone else is just, even every patriarch, everyone, even the, the last chapter has been, was crazy with Judah and Tamar. Crazy. But Joseph here is like a breath of fresh air. Now, I am a little rusty right now, so I might say Jacob instead of Joseph. I said that last service. I mean, I mean Joseph, unless I mean Jacob. <laughs> but I probably will mean Joseph. So track with me. I'll try to catch myself if I say that because I've been doing that a lot lately. All right. So let me read this to you. Probably one of the most uh, really famous chapter in Genesis, and um, it's a great chapter. So let me read chapter 39 to you, and then I'll pray. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the garden, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became success- a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egypt- Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight and attended him. And he made him an overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him an overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was a handsome man in form and appearance. Now, what you're supposed to do right here, this is actually the tension, this is actually the uh uh-oh part. Like, a lot of people are like, hey, but that's not the hey part. That's not like, oh, he's good looking. No, this is like, he's about to get in trouble, okay? That's why the narrator puts that there. He was handsome in form and appearance. You're supposed to go, ugh, that's not good, normally. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. She just came right out and said it, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, listen to this, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by the garment, saying, lie with me. 
But he left his garment in her hand and fled at, and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that, that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called the men of her household and said to them, See, he, um, he brought this among us, this Hebrew, to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me and cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoken to him, this is the way that your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the palace, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done... There, it was, it was he who, who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Let's pray. God, I pray that, that today, as we're going through this teaching, God, that you would... Help us to love you even more than our own lives, God. I know for some of us, that's like a pipe dream. That's like just no way that can happen. But Lord, let, let it be true that we fear you and love you above everything else, God. Above even our own desires. Above even our own comfort, God. I pray you would speak to us, Lord. I thank you for this church. I thank you, God, that you continually gather people here to, to worship Christ. And I pray that if, if people are here without the faith, without faith in Jesus, that God, that you would open up our eyes to see you. And those of us who need faith today, you would give faith. And those of us who our faith needs to increase, that you would increase our faith. Show us your glory today. I pray for your anointing. I need your help desperately, especially um, talking about the things that we're gonna talk about today. So I pray your anointing. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was studying for this message and I was studying the life of Joseph and looking into his life and, and preparing for this, the phrase that, that, Kate, that kept coming back to my mind as I was looking at his life, not just this section, but especially this section, but as his whole life progresses, the, the phrase that kept coming to my mind was the pain in the plan. The pain in the plan. And that's what we titled this sermon. See, most of you have heard that God has a plan for your life. And that's true. God has a plan. You might have heard that from an evangelist. You might have heard that from someone that you love. You might have heard that from a youth pastor or someone. Maybe that's even how you communicate the truth of the gospel of Jesus. You, you start with God has a plan for your life. And that is true. God does have a plan. You might have even found that in the Bible as you're reading through the Old Testament. You come across something like Jeremiah 29, that God has a plan for our lives, and that is true. And you might know that, that God has a plan for your life. But what if the plan that God has for your life involves tremendous suffering? 
What if the plan that God has for your life involves, has attached to it, attached to the plan, tremendous suffering? How is God involved in that sort of plan? How is God involved in that sort of suffering? Is God like FEMA or the Red Cross, where he's like really, really good at disaster relief, but he can't really do anything to prevent it? I mean, he's good at disaster relief, so some... So, something bad happened in your life, some suffering, some wave of tragedy hits you, and you're like, God, and, you're, and he's there, and he's like, he's there to, to make disaster relief, to bring relief to you. You're like, okay, thank you, God. I need that relief. Thank you. Minister to me. But where were you last week? I know that you can use this tragedy for good. I know, and that's the language that a lot of us are comfortable with. God can use bad things in our life. God can use them. But what if what if, what if God is actually involved in the design of the suffering? That's a little bit more like, whoa, wait, wait. I don't know if I can deal with that. Is God really like the Red Cross? Like he, he just like, okay, I can't prevent disasters, but I'm really good at disaster relief. Or does God actually involve some way in the design of our suffering? If God has a plan for a life, what if that plan does involve suffering? How do we deal with these sort of questions? Maybe these are questions that you've not thought about. Maybe in, in, in your kind of Christian or religious mind, you like keep that out. It's like, well, I don't really think about that too much. God works, works all things together for good. He works it all out. But what we're hit with in Genesis right away is like, God just doesn't, cause, God just doesn't like work things out for good. He's actually a part of working the bad out as well. How do you deal with these questions about this, about suffering and God without letting go of biblical truth? See, when you deal with these sort of questions, and probably, I mean, I know that, the, I know that maybe a lot of you have thought through this. When you deal with these sort of questions, you can't let go of the tension that the Bible holds. Here, let me give it to you, let me give you the truth. This is the truth. On one hand, Joseph's jealous evil brothers plotted to kill him. They plotted, they seen him, and Joseph comes out with this technicolor dream coat he got from his dad. He's like, look at my coat. Like, my dad loves me. I had dreams that you were bowing down to me. I was like the star, and you were like a moon, and you were like a sheep, and my sheep was bigger, and then you guys were like bowing down, and I'm like, thank you. And it was just, I don't know, it's just a dream. I'm just dreaming. I don't know. <laughs> and they were like, are you, we hate you. Not only do we hate you, we're going to kill you, and not, not like brothers and sisters, like, really kill you. Not like you kid. Like, really, we're going to kill you. But then someone said, no, no, let's just sell him into slavery. Oh, yeah, that's a good option. So they sell him into slavery. On one hand, Joseph's brothers are responsible for the evil that they caused, plotting his death, plotting his slavery. They are, a vic- he, they're, 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 they caused injustice. That's one side of the truth. On the other hand, God sent Joseph into slavery. On one hand, the brothers did it. On the other hand, God did it. This will be clear at the end of our narrative. This will be clear at the end of Joseph's life. God did it. If you've ever meditated on Psalm 105, that reflects on this. And it says that God did all these things. That God even caused the famine to happen in Egypt. God caused that. See, on one hand, Potiphar's cougar wife lied, (laughs) tried to like you know, jump on Joseph and then left his garment and then lied about it and got him into prison. On one hand, his wife did it. 
But on the other hand, God sent Joseph to prison. What if the plan that God has for us involves suffering? What if it even involves, dare I even say it, injustice? How do we deal with that? See, a lot of us don't even have the, how do we even get the mental framework to deal with that sort of stuff? Like, okay, I know that God can work all things out. I know there's great wickedness in this, in this city. I know there's great wickedness in this world. But what, at what point does God say, I'm going to allow that? At what point does God even mean it? See, we can't take a paintbrush. We're not given the paintbrush in, in Genesis. We're not given the paintbrush to paint over the story. God worked everything out for good. Nowhere were we given the paintbrush that says God used all this injustice for good. We're not given that paintbrush. What we're given at the end of the, end of the book of Genesis is that God meant it all for good. There's a big difference between use and meant. God meant slavery for good. God meant him being sold into slavery and in prison for good. God meant it for good. How do we reconcile this? There's two biblical givens that I want you to absorb. I think it's really good for us to absorb as a, we're a young church, we're young in age, but not only are we a young church, but our congregants are fairly young. And this is what you need to get right before some huge suffering takes place in our lives. Maybe, I know that there's a lot of people in our young church that have gone through tremendous suffering. But we need, we need to absorb these things. Here, here are two things that the Bible holds in tension. And both are compatible, meaning both are true simultaneously in Scripture. And here's the first. God is sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign. But his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereign never overrides. His sovereign never functions the way that human responsibility is gone. That's one thing that you have to hold in tension in Scripture. Here's the other one. Human beings are morally responsible creatures. They significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions, and so forth. And they are rightly held accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent or reliant upon humanity's choices. If that just kind of made your mind explode, I'm sorry. I know it's like still early. You haven't had brunch yet. I get it. But, but look at this real quick. This is the two things that Scripture holds in tension, two things that are truths that you can't let go of. On one end, humanity is responsible completely, and that never changes God. But God is completely sovereign, and he never overrides human responsibility, and they're both hung there and per- simultaneously true at the same time. Now, how, how are these things true? How are they both simultaneously and continuously true at the same time. I believe the thrust of this narrative deals with this. It's what is being shown through Jacob's life and how these two things are shown in concert. See, story is the best way to get across theology. That's why Jesus shared a ton of stories. This story here shares this theological truth. And so let's look at it like this. The responsibility of Joseph and the sovereignty of God. The responsibility of Joseph and the sovereignty of God. Those are our two sort of headings as we go into this, this text. First, the responsibility of Joseph. Joseph probably had every single excuse to be bitter. 
He had every excuse to be bitter against God. You remember his dreams? He had dreams of his brothers bowing down to him, his beautiful coat of many colors that his dad gave him to show favor and blessing. All of that was stripped from him. He was beat up, thrown into a hole, left for dead, and then finally sold into slavery. And those slave traders sold him to Potiphar. And now he's a slave in Potiphar's house with no family and his dreams all but dead. Now, I know for a second you're going, well, that's a great, that's a story. Okay, how's it in? Listen, this isn't just a story. This was someone's life. At 17 years old, his dreams dead, dead, sold into slavery. His brothers, who, whom he probably loved, betrayed him, beat him up and sold. And now he's a, he's a foreigner and he's a slave in someone else's home. His family's gone. He's not in the land of his God anymore. He is, from everything outside, if you were there in that moment, because this is a reality. I know that you know that, that, that human trafficking is a reality. I know that you know this. I know that you know it's a reality in our city. This, this is what happened to Joseph. And as he was sold there, he could have been bitter. His young life not turning out the way he had hoped. And Joseph could, used, could have used his bitterness as an excuse to live for himself. To like, you know what? God, God kind of got me into this mess. If God is sovereign over everything, he's the reason I'm here. You know what? God, I'm done with you. Go mess with another life. Go use someone else's life. You don't, I don't want you to use mine anymore. He could have done that. Maybe you've said that. I know I've felt that before. Or maybe I think this is what we do when we suffer. I think, I know I'm very guilty of this. Using suffering as an excuse to sin. Nobody knows the pain that I'm going through. Joseph could have used his suffering as an excuse to sin. He could have used his suffering as an excuse to, when Potiphar's wife was like, hey, you're good looking. He's like, yeah, I know. So do you want to come to bed with me? You know what? Why not? I don't, God, I can't sin against God, but God can sin against me. God can let me go into slavery and I want to be faithful to him. No, he's not going to hold up his end of the bargain. I'm not holding up into my end. I'm, and this was before the Ten Commandments, by the way. Like, there wasn't th- anything written in stone saying, you shall not commit adultery. Right? That's not written in stone yet. It's like, well, there's not really a commandment, I don't think. I haven't read anything about that. Have you ever thought about that? You're like, well, this is like before the commandments. Like, how do you even know what to do before the commandments? Right? I mean, you're like, well, this will come later. You have excuse. It's like liberty. Hey, I never heard that I wasn't supposed to do that. No one told me yet. But he didn't do that. He didn't grow bitter. He didn't use his, his suffering as an excuse to sin. He didn't blame God for his misfortune. Actually, Joseph is a breath of fresh air in Genesis. After dealing with Jacob, the deceiver, that God has to break to use, his grace wonderfully chases him down, redeems him. And then the last chapter, last week, Genesis 38, are you kidding me? Have you ever read that passage before? Have you ever spent time in Genesis 38? Judah and Tamar. I mean, Judah sleeping with his daughter-in-law, but, no, well, but he didn't know it was his daughter-in-law. He thought she was a prostitute. It's, and the way that it reads is like, oh, oh, he didn't know. So he rolls up, he's like, I'm going to sleep with you. Oh, man, dang, that's my, she's pregnant? Okay, then kill her. Oh, that's my son? Oh, I mean, don't kill her. 
And then the story ends. You're like, wait, really? The Old Testament is crazy. It's out of control. You're like, that's in my Bible. My Bible is going nuts right now. This is, this is, I, I read that and I just trip out every single time. I don't even know how to wrap my mind around it. That's why I had Josh teach it. I'm like, I don't know what that means, but do you have to teach it? <laughs> and you read that and this is just a breath of fresh air. You're like, oh, this is so, Joseph's, I mean, none of us are like this, but it's so good to read about someone like this. Rock solid integrity, a tremendous love for God that displays itself in beautiful fear of breaking God's heart. I can't sin against God. I mean, who says that? Who, whenever they're tempted to sin, looks at the other person and they're like, listen, I can't sin against God. We make up excuses. We're like, oh, no, I'm just not, I can't right now. I'm like, I'm dating fast right now. And we just make up stuff like that. He looks her right in the eye like, listen, I can't sin against God. Are you, you're a crazy woman. Leave me alone. I can't sin against God. He has a glorious work ethic. <laughs> I mean, he works for Potiphar as a slave and is the best slave. And Potiphar's like, here, take my house. Then he goes to prison, and the prison guard's like, take the prison. <laughs> like, run this joint, man. He's like Shawshank Redemption, but, you know, he doesn't, like, stab the guy in the back at the end. If you've seen that movie. If you haven't, I don't know what's wrong with you. But, like, Joseph, his work ethic is crazy. And at the end of it, he, has, he displays unconditional forgiveness. He didn't blame God for his dumb job because he had so much more potential. He was trustworthy. He served Potiphar well and faithfully. And because of that, Potiphar put him in charge of everything. And for years, he served and worked serving God and serving man. This is great. I think you just need to maybe write this down somewhere. Some of you guys, that that your work is becoming like, I can't do this. Just... uh, yeah, Joseph. I was going to say Jacob. Joseph served God and man. God and man. So as he was serving Potiphar, he was serving God. As he was serving God, he was serving Potiphar. He was faithful to Potiphar. He was faithful to God. You see how he even connected the two? I can't, when she said sleep with me, he goes, I can't sleep with you. Potiphar put me in charge of everything and told me I, I can't sleep with you. I'm not going to sleep with you. That would be to betray him and to betray God. I'm serving Potiphar. I'm serving God. I'm serving God. I'm serving Potiphar. Guys, when this happens, when you're serving your boss and serving God as you're serving the boss, it's beautiful. When you're serving God and then as you're serving God, you're serving your neighbor, and as you're serving your neighbor, you're serving God, and there's this symbiotic, beautiful relationship going on, that's beautiful. And this is what's happening in in Joseph's life. But there's a time that comes, as there is a time that, that will happen in every single life in here, where a decision is to be made where something happens. It's no longer serving God and serving man. The question becomes, will you serve God or serve man? You're serving God and you're serving man and it's going great and then there's a decision to be made. Maybe this way to get ahead through lying or cheating or sleeping with someone. And then it becomes, do I serve God or do I serve man? If I start neglecting, if I start neglecting God in my job, There's a a fork in the road. Serve God or serve man. If I start neglecting my family and my responsibilities as a godly husband or a godly wife, am I serving God or am I serving man? And so this came in the form of Potiphar's wicked wife, Mrs. Desperate Housewife herself. And Potiphar's wife knew what she wanted. She knew exactly what she wanted. She wanted Joseph. As she was shameless in her advancements, 
She walked right up to him and said, sleep with me, have sex with me right now. She was persistent. She asked him every single day, every day, day after day, Tuesday. So will you sleep with me? No, go away, crazy woman. Next day, Wednesday, hey, so are you going to sleep with me? No, I'm not. Day after day after day. She was even a little bit, she was a bit of a temptress too, because in verse 10 it says that she asked him to lie with him or be with her. Lie with her or be with her. Like, like she would say, you know, just come over and we'll just like watch a movie. You know, share a blanket. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Just rub my feet. My back hurts. Can you, I have a thing. Can you? It's like, no, I'm not going to touch you. Go away. Like, she, was a, she, was, she would bring him in and try to seduce him. Probably most importantly, she was powerful. To please her would secure Joseph's career advancement. If he pleased her, then his career was set, done. Like, okay, all I got to do is sleep with her one time. What's the big deal? Sleep with her one time. My, my, my career's set, I'm set here. I could be, I mean, I know I'm a slave, but this is the best that I sleep and have it. But if I cross her, if I deny her, this would make this powerful woman my enemy and probably ruin all my hopes for career advancement. Probably ruin everything. And Joseph has the classic recipe for falling into temptation. Number one, he's good looking. If the Bible calls you handsome, you're probably very handsome. (laughs) If you're the only person the Bible calls handsome, you are gorgeous. This is the only person in the Bible. In the Bible, the Bible says Jesus is, was just normal. There's nothing about, attractive about him that would make you go to him. The Bible says in Isaiah. But the, jo, Joseph was, it says, he was handsome in form, meaning he had a great body and appearance. He was gorgeous, beautiful. Okay, recipe for disaster right there, okay? That was the thing in the story. And he was gorgeous. You're like, ooh, like that's not Okay. Because what happens next? He was given freedom and supervision, from supervision. He can do anything he wanted to. Potiphar put him in charge of everything. And he was rapidly promoted, which can go to someone's head. And the last recipe for temptation or disaster is he was barred from one thing. There's only one thing he couldn't do. That's it. He could do anything else but one thing. You can't sleep with my wife. Normally, thus far in the book of Genesis, when there's one thing you can't do, that's the thing you do. Eat from any tree, any of them, except that one. That's the one I want. I know. Don't do it. You can do anything in my house. Just don't sleep with my wife. What's the one thing you think is going to happen? He's going to sleep with her. He doesn't. And it was also the official job of the slave to provide sexual favors for masters. That's what slaves did. You could say, this is kind of part of my job. I, I, I got to sleep with her. But Jacob's classic response, behold, because me, my master has no concern about anything in his house and he has put everything that he has in my charge, he is not even greater than me in this house. Like I run this place. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you. You're it. Joseph connects serving Potiphar to serving God and he says this, because you are his wife, how then can I do this great wickedness? Can we just stop there real fast and just call sin what sin is? Great wickedness. It's great wickedness. He's not, he doesn't try to dumb it down. He's not like, well, I can't, I can't do this thing. Like, you know, I, can't, I, I know we're both con- consenting adults, but you know, may, he just called, it's sin. It's wrong. It's wickedness. Guys, don't get so, so immersed in our Western culture 
not just Western coast, but West Coast, not just West Coast, but Bay Area culture, that you start thinking, oh, sin's not really sin. It's like you can use other language for it. You can start using therapeutic language for it. It's sin. Joseph called sin, sin. And then what he says, too, what just blows my mind, he goes, I can't sin against God. Not just against Potiphar, but against God. Against, you mean, you mean the God who sent you as a slave to Potiphar? That God? Yes, that God. We, we have to, I think we have to do a, a very clear job of calling sin, sin. And this is why. I'm not just saying that to be some fundamentalist pastor. I'm saying this because sin will operate destructively as sin, regardless of your nomenclature. I don't care what you call it. It'll still function as sin. You can call cancer something else. It's still going to function as cancer. You can call it something else. Well, it's not really. It's like we call it something different here. It's still going to operate the same way. It's still going to destroy, tear apart, ruin. And this isn't just big sins. This is your small neglect, neglecting God, neglecting a time alone with God, neglecting a prayer life. Like even the neglect of your spirituality is sin. And whatever you call it, I'm busy. Call it what you want. It's still destroying you. When then one day comes, and um, he's going through the house, and he's, uh, I don't know, doing his, his duties, and then she grabs him by the garment. We're supposed to connect that with the coat of many colors. Second time here, this guy's sold out by his coat or garment. Second time. It's like, stop wearing clothes, man. I mean, every single time. <laughs> so he, he goes in. And she gra- and, and, and it wouldn't have been a coat like a robe. It wouldn't have been like this really cool robe. It would have been, um, I don't know, a sarong? That's, I don't know, is that a thing? I think it's like a thing you wrap around. Okay, good. So it's a thing that you wrap around, and he, it would ba- basically be an undergarment. That's what you wore indoors as a slave. And you would wear this thing, and she grabbed him by that. And grabbed it and pulled it off. And what did he do? He ran for his life. He ran from temptation. He didn't like stop and go, okay, stop. Can I have my pants back? Like, she's like, Come get him. He's like, oh, okay. I mean, just like there was not, there was no, none of that. There was no conversation. Like she walks in, come here, lie with me. And he just runs, and she has this garment in his hand, and he's running. And he would have been running, probably somewhat nude. This would have been the only thing he was wearing, running nude. And one commentator said it, and I love this. He ran out of that house, both filled with disgrace and filled with honor at the same time. Filled with disgrace because he was like running half naked out of the house running away from a woman. I mean, how degrading is that? Like a girl that wants you physically, sexually, you're beautiful. Use your body. Advance yourself through, I mean, use what you got, man. And he runs out just naked, just screaming, ah, like whatever. I don't know what he was doing. She says he screamed. I don't know if he just just grabbed her, lie with me, and like bear hug. And he just went, ah, and he screamed and he just ran out. I want, I want the real-to-real when I get to heaven. I just love to, I want to see this scene. He just runs away, and she has his garment in her hand. And she lies, obviously. She falsely accuses Joseph, and he's sent to prison. It's her fault. He rejects evil. He follows God's, 
God's law. Well, not even God's law. He follows God's will. He follows, he, he follows God. He's the one, and then he's the one that ends up in prison as a common criminal. How unjust is this? Where is God when his loyal servants suffer such injustice? We would fight this injustice, as we should all injustices. But this is what this is this is crazy. Look, look at what look at what Genesis 39, verse 21 says. Right after that he went into prison, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. You want to get the gravity of that? Imagine looking a traffic traffic person in the face and saying, God is with you. And he will show you steadfast love. How hard would that be to say? But it's true. It's completely true. God was with him and showed him steadfast love. Well, this is where I want to get into the sovereignty of God. Because this, all of this was God's doing. God sent him here. If we read the end of this story back into this part of the story, it was God who meant him to be in prison. For years, he's in prison. One of the most famous sayings of the entire Bible comes at the end of Genesis. When Joseph's brothers come to Joseph and say, and this is later on in the story when they get back to Egypt, when Joseph's brothers come to him and say, are you going to kill us now that we sold you into slavery? We sold you. Are you going to kill us? What are you going to do with us? And Joseph looked at them and said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You sold me because you're evil and you meant evil, but not God. God meant my suffering for good. Even if we don't read the end of the story back into the story, how do we know from this chapter that God is involved the whole time? Because of those phrases that are repeated over and over and over again. Though this is a great, great chapter on temptation, that's not the thrust of it. The thrust of this chapter is this. God is with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord, four times. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 21, verse 23. And here's the irony. When Joseph had every opportunity to think that God was not with him, that God had left him, that God had abandoned him in his misfortune and suffering, it was just then that God was most present in his life. It's just when he thought, God left me, I'm in too much pain. God must not be in this. It's just then where the narrator says, and the Lord was with him, and not just with him, his steadfast love was toward Joseph. His steadfast love was in the middle of his pain. See, we are so quick to assume that if God is with us, there will be no pain, no major pain. I mean, of course, our car will get broken into Maybe a wallet stolen here or there, like that, but no major pain, no terminal pain. When terminal pain happens in our life, when huge problems, when sin, a huge sin is committed against us, where's God? I'm so guilty of this. Because for most of us, the concept of success and blessing is minimizing pleasure and maximizing pain. And when the worst happens in our life, we accuse God of abandoning us, not truly caring about us, not loving us. We think his job's God to float over us, ensuring our comfort. I want you to settle this in your heart right now. Every, I, I, 
right now. I want this church, and this is my, my hope, my prayer for the church today, that this church would settle in our hearts right now this truth. The presence of God does not mean the absence of pain. The presence of God does not mean the absence of pain. Because God is present in your life does not mean that you will not experience pain. The presence of God does not mean the most heinous acts of human depravity cannot show up at your doorstep. God is not a good luck charm keeping away bad karma. God is not an, a saint you buy at a religious store and put around your neck for safe travels through life. That is not who God is. So you might be thinking, so why in the world, why do I need God if he's not there for me? Listen, I never said he wasn't there for you. He was there with Joseph. He was there in the pain. He was there in, in the pit. He was there in the prison. He was there in slave. God was near him in the pain. He was near him. Maybe you should look at it this way. Here's another way to look at it. Nobody wants to read a book or watch a movie or hear a story that has no conflict, no pain, no suffering. No one wants to see that movie. No one goes to the movies, pays $38 to see a movie, sits down, and the movie comes on, and there's this happy couple, and they have everything, and they're gorgeous, and they're beautiful, and they have it all, and then they go grocery shopping, and they come home, and they put their groceries away, and they go watch a movie, and then they have dinner, and they go to bed, and the end of the movie, you're like, nobody pays for that movie, but that's everyone, that's what everyone wants to live, though. Everyone wants that life. Like, I just want a life where it's just easy. I want to wake up, and I want, like, my body to feel really good. I want to feel like I just ran, but I didn't run. I want to wake up like that every single day. I want, to feel, I, want to, I, want to, I want to drink coffee and feel like I was drinking juice, like the you know, really good juice. I want to get on Muni, and there's no one on it, and Muni goes, hey, there's no one here. Do you want me to take you straight to your place? You're like, yes. <laughs> and you get off, and you go into your little what at work, and you're like, assistant has donuts, and they're negative calories that day. And you want to live that way until you die old and warm in your bed. But nobody wants to, no one wants to read that book. No one wants to hear that story. Nobody wants to watch that movie. Every single movie that you love has some sort of horrific conflict in it, pain in it, and resolve. On one level, God is a great storyteller. He's using this world, my life, your life, your pain, my pain, to tell a great story. The pain that you might be suffering right now, the pain that you have in your life that will never go away. He's using to tell a great story. For some of you, that's what you need to hear. For others, you're like, wait, that's a little bit too reductionistic for me. Because this is my life. My life. Like, I I understand that God tells a great story, and that's great. I want to see a movie. I don't want to live that. If you just say this thing that God wants to tell a great story, and what happened to me when I was a kid... What the doctor just told, like, this is my life. How can God just say, I'm writing a great story with my life when I'm in so much pain? This was Joseph's real life. This was his life. He had everything. Everything, and in one afternoon, his whole life changed, and now he's a slave in a foreign land. Then he served with integrity and obeyed God, 
and ran from evil, and in another afternoon he was a slave in prison. This is his life. But you know what, it, what Joseph says to his brothers later on when the first time he sees them? They, they're just dumbfounded when they see that he's in Egypt and he's ruling Egypt. And Joseph looks at them and said that God sent me here. God did this. God did it. All the pain, all the suffering, God did this. Why did God do this? To teach him a lesson? To build character in him? Why does God bring us through suffering? To teach us a lesson? Well, kind of. Romans, not kind of, it does. He does. But listen, Romans 5 says this. We rejoice in our suffering zone that our suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. This is what suffering does, guys. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's a part of suffering that builds character and hope in us. But Joseph wasn't suffering to learn a lesson. I want you to get this. This is an important part. Joseph had no recorded sin. Joseph was not suffering to learn a lesson. Joseph was not Jacob. Jacob suffered to learn a lesson. God had to break Jacob. God did not have to break Joseph. The reason why this is in here is not to say, okay, the reason why Joseph went through suffering is that God can break him to teach him a lesson. Guys, okay, some of you guys are suffering, and, it, and, and you would think, okay, God, I'm suffering. Teach me a lesson. And we always make it about us. It's like, maybe God's trying to teach me patience. That's the go-to, right? It's patience. God, teach me patience. It's like, dude, you've been trying to learn patience for like 30 years. You haven't learned it. I'm, I'm, you're probably not going to learn patience. Just deal with that, okay? What if God's not trying to teach you a lesson? Why are you trying to make your suffering about you? What if your suffering is not about you? What if your suffering was about God saving the world? What if your suffering was about God bringing redemption into San Francisco? God bringing redemption to Africa? God bringing bringing redemption to human trafficking? God bringing redemption to domestic violence victims? God bringing redemption to kids who can't read? Something. What if your suffering had nothing to do with you? Did Joseph's suffering have to do with him? Joseph's suffering was about getting Joseph in the right place to save the world. Getting Joseph in that place where he would save Egypt, he would save his family Israel, because they would come over because they would have no food. And Joseph had a plan to keep the, the world going in famine. What if you're suffering Someone, something, it's about something way bigger than you. Let me ask you this question. Can God use your life to bring blessing to the world even if pain is included in the plan? Can God use your life to bring blessing to this world even if there's pain in the plan? This was the life of Joseph. This is the life of followers of God. And this should not surprise you, church, because this is the way that you and I were redeemed. Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, was separated from the Father, that your sins and my sins can be forgiven. When we said yes to Potiphar's wife a hundred times already, 
in our life. Jesus died. He suffered to save the world. That's, how, that's what you were born into. If you've trusted Jesus for your salvation and your redemption, that's what you've been born into. You are now born into a family who's defined by this. We suffer to bless the world. If you don't think that's true, you need to reread the New Testament. Actually, let me read you a portion of it right now in 2 Corinthians. Look what Paul says to the church in Corinth. But we have this treasure, this, he's talking about the surpassing glory of God. We have this great knowledge and glory of God in these like little jars of clay, these little fragile bodies that we have to show the surpassing power belongs to God and doesn't belong to us. Listen what he says here. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. We're always carrying the body of the death of Jesus. Has that phrase ever tripped you out? Do you ever read that and kind of go, well, I'm going to skip over that part. Like nobody really knows what that means. You are carrying, Christian, follower of God, you are carrying around the body of the death of Jesus in you. Like, what does that mean? Listen, look, look at the next sentence or the next phrase. So the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We carry around the denial of flesh, the suffering that brings blessing in our bodies so that the life of Jesus may be manifested. Like, well, I, I haven't really sensed the life of Jesus manifest in my body. Has there been denial? Has there been death? Has there been suffering? For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. We who live, followers of Jesus who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So the death, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Death in us, life in you. This is the relationship that we now have with the world. It's one, it's our lot. It's what we have. And, and, and this like freaks you out. You're like, wait, wait, where, where's the prosperity in this? Oh, there's great prosperity in it. There's great joy in it. Basically what this is saying is this. And I don't know if you can say this, church. I want to be a church that says this. That last phrase, so death is at work in us. Can we say, so death is at work at Reality San Francisco, that life is brought into San Francisco? Death at work in us as a church, that life will be brought into SF. Death in us, life in the city. If your life has been all about you, just kind of grabbing on to all the pleasure and all the comfort in your life, That's not the way followers of God live. And if you can believe for a second that God could use evil and suffering committed against Joseph to accomplish blessing in Egypt and the salvation of his family, and if God can intend evil and suffering of the cross of Christ for such amazing good, maybe we can begin to believe that he can and will use and cause what is evil may seem senseless, maybe even suffering in our life for good. This is the way you and I are called to live. And I guess it's more of a challenge. Maybe today is more of a challenge. Maybe today is maybe more of a wake-up call. Maybe you need to realign 
yourself. Maybe you've been living for yourself, meaning the pleasures of your life and the things that are around you for so long that you kind of haven't seen outside of this. Like, you're not here for that. That's not what God calls us to. Like, can we be people? Maybe just one of those challenges that God uses to wake this church up. Like, can we be a people? Can we be a church that says, God, if you want to bless San Francisco and we have to suffer in the meantime, if, we, if there's some suffering, that's, if there's a plan that you have for life and it involves pain, God, may your will be done. May your will be done. And the suffering of this present life is not worthy to be compared to the, the glory that will be revealed in me on that day. That's why Christians have a great hope. That's why we have a great hope. This is the will of God, church. And God is sovereign over our prosperity as he is sovereign over our pain. God is sovereign over it all. And God is good. And God works, causes, uses it, means it all for good. We have to, we have to drive that deep. And we have to drive this deep because, guys, as we live this life, and as we live this life for the glory of God, you will experience some level of suffering. And may you be like Joseph that said, though I suffer and maybe I even suffered under people that meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. I pray that you would grow this church, mature this church, mature me. Show us, God, how to use our life, not for ourselves. How to be like Joseph, like, okay, we're, we're in this city and we're not in jobs we like, completely love. Maybe we, we're not. Maybe we have pain that we don't, we don't want in our lives. But I pray that we could trust you and say, God, mean it for good. And I pray that, God, you would use our suffering the suffering that, we, that maybe we, we experience on a small level, maybe in a huge level. Use it for good, God. We surrender our lives to you and we say your will be done. Bring about your redemption in San Francisco and in, in the Bay Area, God. In Jesus' name, amen.